great to be here. Um, yeah, uh, as you probably know already, you know, the Oshmans are amazing, and they've had a great impact on Sarah and I's life, and uh, so it's, it's just a real privilege to be here this morning. You know, they're the kind of people you move across the country to go to church with, so <laughs> if Indonesia doesn't work out, you know, watch out, because uh, we might be here. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great to be here, and uh, yeah, I just want to start off before we get into our text. Uh, the sermon that we're going to be uh, looking at today is, is one that I've had the opportunity actually to preach in Indonesia a few times, and so I'll kind of bring in how some of the themes that we're looking at has, has had an impact in Indonesia and, and in that culture and in that context. Um, but uh, most of what I have to say today is not original to me, you know, so if you're encouraged in any way, the glory goes to God first and then to a multitude of other men that have shown me these truths. And so if you uh, want more information on how to dig in uh, to what we're talking about today, let me know and I can point you to some great resources. But we're going to be looking at Numbers chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. And as you're turning there, let me just kind of set it up. So the Bible has many parts that we're tempted to ignore, right, if we're honest. Uh, there's many parts of, of Scripture that are just plain hard to understand, and so we don't spend a whole lot of time focusing on those parts. But I think what happens more often is there's parts of Scripture that are easy to understand, but we don't like what they say. And so we try to kind of skip over those. And we do that to our own peril, right? We ignore passages of Scripture that we don't like or don't understand uh, to our own peril. Every word of Scripture is inspired by God. There's no wasted ink in God's Word. And so um, Numbers, at least to me, I, I don't think I'm unique in this, but I think the whole book of Numbers is one of those books I don't spend a whole lot of time in. Um, it, it's easy to kind of fly over. Uh, you know, you, you get Genesis and you get, you know, kind of halfway through Exodus, and then you kind of want to skip forward to some of the more exciting stuff. Um, especially for me, numbers, I mean, I hate math. So first of all, there's all these numbers in the book, right? And, and it's, it's very, it can get confusing. It's all these lists of names of people who uh, you know, I don't know who these people are, and, and it's a different culture, and, and, and it, can, it can seem very hard to connect to what, what is God trying to communicate here. Um, but then the other reason I think we're tempted to skip over Numbers is there's some really hard truths in the book of Numbers. Uh, it's a book of law, and there's some, some rather strict, rather harsh, maybe even weird laws in the book of Numbers, and, and it's hard for us to reconcile some of these seemingly harsh laws with what we know of God, that he's a loving God. You know, how do these things work together? And so my, my prayer this morning is, as we look at one of these passages, that we'll see even here in the book of Numbers that our God is good, our God is loving, and there's a hope in the gospel of Christ like no other. All right. So Numbers chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And to set it up, 
you know, the people of God have been wandering in the wilderness, and God is giving them rules to live by as they are in the wilderness. And the first four chapters of Numbers, he's been organizing the camp of, of this camp that the people of God are going to live in. And he set it up to where each tribe kind of has their own location in the camp. And in the center of this camp is the tabernacle. And in the center of the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where the presence of God is visibly seen. And so God's about to, to move into the camp, to, to move into the midst, the middle of his people. But before he does, he gives them one last rule about who cannot be in the camp. All right, and that's our passage. So let's look at it. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp. As the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. So, like I said, this is probably one of those passages you don't think about a lot, right? You're not going to see this on a coffee cup or at a Hallmark store, right? Um, it's harsh. I mean, I've been to this wilderness. It's probably the most desolate place on earth that I've ever seen. Um, to be put outside the camp is to be separated from everyone you love. It's to have no shelter. It's to have no protection. It's to have no food. It's to be separated from the presence of God. This is, this is intense. Like, we really, we need to feel this. Like, imagine this is you. Imagine you, you come in from working, uh, from, from tending the, the, the sheep outside the camp, and, and you come back in inside the camp, and you're getting washed up for dinner, and you notice a little sore on your hand. And, and, and you show it to your wife, and, and hey, I, I don't know what's, what this is. Uh, you know, it, it just kind of appeared. And a couple of days go on, and it doesn't go away. In fact, it starts to get bigger. And eventually, you go to the priest, and you, you show him this sore on your hand. And, and the priest looks at you, and he says, you have leprosy. You need to go. And you say, just let me go say goodbye to my family at least. Let me go kiss my wife. Let me hold my daughter one more time. And he says, no, no. Take what you have on you right now and leave the camp. Be put out of the camp. I mean, four times in four verses, God says that these people must be put out. And the, and the word in the Hebrew there is, is the same root word for arrow or javelin. You know, it's... it's violently throwing or expelling something out of the camp, right? This is, this is hard. This is harsh. Why would God give such a harsh law? What is he trying to teach his people, and what is he trying to teach us through this law? Well, I think there's many reasons, but, but I want to draw out three. All right. So the first reason is a practical reason. All right. By by removing 
those who were unclean, who had diseases, from the camp, God was literally saving the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. All right? Just think, they're in the desert. There's no hand sanitizer. There's no hospital. There's no, you know, quarantine plastic bubble you can put people in. Um, there's no uh, running water. There's, there's no facilities. You can't lock people in a room with their own private bathroom and just say, okay, you know, do your stuff in there. Um, everything is shared. And so it's a very practical public health reason that God is saying these people have to be separated from the camp. Otherwise, it's going to spread, right? And it's going to affect the whole camp. So there's a very practical public health, health reason that God sent the unclean outside of the camp. And, and it's, it's really merciful of God to have done this, to force them to do this. But I think God's word wants us to understand that there's, there's more, there's deeper reasons why he's doing this, why he gave them this law. And verse 3, we see the second reason for this law. It says, You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. So the first reason is practical, but the second reason is, is theological. God wants his people to know that he takes his holiness seriously. He wants them to know that he is a holy God. He's completely pure. He's completely clean. He's completely perfect. He is the living God. And the living God cannot be in fellowship with a dirty, defiled, diseased, dying person. He is holy. And God's people were to put God's holiness on display by keeping themselves holy. And in fact, later on in the history of Israel, they failed to maintain their holiness. And because of that, um, God removed his presence from them. God no longer dwelt in their midst. And, and this isn't just an Old Testament principle either. I mean, don't think that God cared more about his holiness in the Old Testament before the cross than he does now. God still cares about his holiness. First um, John uh, puts it this way. Yeah, First John 1, 5 through 7. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The truth is the perpetually unclean and defiled person is cut off from God. They cannot be near where God dwells, and so they're sent outside the camp. God wanted his people to know how much he values his holiness, and he still wants us to know how much he values his holiness. So if the story ended there, we'd have enough to worship God for right now. The merciful God who keeps his people safe, the holy God who demands that his people maintain holiness so that he can dwell with them. But the story doesn't end there, right? Numbers is at the beginning of the story. We know that the Bible is full of, uh, of multiple 
stories, but they all fit together to tell one big story, which is the story of Christ, right? He's the hero of the story, all right? So that's what I think is the third point to these laws. God wanted his people to see and feel and know their need of a Savior. A Savior who could make the unclean clean. The Savior who cared about his holiness, but also cared about those who were cut off from him because of their defilement. So I want you to just remember in your mind in verse 2 of, uh, of, of Numbers, the three people that were to be sent out of the camp, right? The leper, person with the discharge, and someone who's had contact with the dead body, right? So keep that in your mind. And then flip over to uh, the Gospel of Mark. I'm not going to have this on the screen because it's going to be a lot of verses and we're going to kind of skip around. But uh, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Otherwise, I'll, I'll read it. But in the Gospel of Mark, we find recorded for us three encounters that Jesus has. And we could look at all three of the synoptic Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, because they all record all three of these encounters. And they all record them in the same order as well. And, and so what that tells us is these aren't just random stories that Mark decided to tell us or Luke decided to tell us. These are foundational encounters that Jesus did at a specific time, in a specific way, in a specific order, in order to tell us something important about who he is. So let's look quickly together at the Gospel of Mark, where we have recorded for us the encounter of Jesus with a leper, a woman with a discharge, and a dead little girl. All right, so Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand. At this point, I want to pause, all right? Now imagine you are a religious Jew, and you've been following Jesus around, and, and he's been teaching these amazing things. He's been teaching with authority. He knows the Old Testament, you know, by heart. Uh, he's been doing miracles. You've seen him do things. You know, this is a holy man. This, this could actually be the Messiah we've been waiting for. And here comes this leper. And you know the law. You know what lepers are supposed to do and where they're supposed to be. This leper comes out and asks Jesus to heal him. And Jesus starts stretching out his hand to touch this leper. What are you doing, Jesus? I thought you were holy. I thought you were a holy man. How in the world are you going to touch this dirty leper? He'll make you unclean. What's going on? Jesus doesn't listen. He reaches out. He touches him. And he said to him, I will be clean. Whereas the Old Testament priest looks the leper in the eye and tells him to get out of the camp. Jesus looks at the leper, reaches out and touches him. And Jesus does not become 
unclean. He makes the leper clean. The gospel writers are telling us this, this Jesus can do what the Old Testament law could never do. The Old Testament law told you how to come back into the camp if somehow miraculously you, you were healed of your disease. But it never told you how to become healed because only God could do that. This Jesus is different. Now turn over to Mark chapter 5. And uh, we're going to start at verse 21 here. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. It's kind of funny. This is a little side note, but in Luke, who was a doctor, he doesn't record all the detail about how all the physicians had failed this lady. It's just kind of interesting. But... Uh, Anyway, so this woman with a discharge, she heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Jesus, what are you doing? You're letting this, this dirty, defiled, diseased woman. We all know she's diseased. She's seen every doctor in the region. You're letting her touch you? He looks at her, verse 34. He says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. She touches him and she becomes clean. Jesus has not become unclean. She is healed. So they keep going. And we'll skip down to verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to enter, no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand. Gospel writers go out of their way to show Jesus is physically touching these people. And just, again, put yourself in the position of, of Peter or John. You know, these were devout men. Jesus, what are you doing? It's a dead body. 
You're going to defile yourself. You're going to blow your ministry. This is it. But he touches her hand, and he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And it's really cool that, that Mark is the only gospel writer who records the actual Aramaic words that Jesus spoke here, Talitha kumi. And I think the reason for that is, is that Mark was not an eyewitness to this event, but Mark got his information from Peter. And Peter was there. And so can't you just picture Peter, you know, an, an older man, decades later, telling this story to Mark, and just, he remembers it so vividly that he can't tell the story without sharing it in the actual language, the actual words Jesus spoke to this little girl. Just that tender moment of Talitha, kumi, little girl, arise. Jesus touches her, and he does not become unclean. She lives. Who is this, this Jesus? It's Jesus who can do things that Moses could never do. No high priest could ever do. Who is this Jesus? This, this Jesus is the Son of God. This Jesus is the only mediator, the only person who can stand between a holy God and a sinful, rebellious people that are defiled by their sin. Now, you might be amazed at Jesus' love and his power to heal, um, but you might be thinking, okay, this is, this is a great story, but I don't have leprosy, and I don't think I have any discharges going on. Um, you know, what does this really have to do with me? Well, first of all, does it really have to have anything to do with you? <laughs> I mean, can't we just sit back and, and be amazed at, at, at our God, the kind of God who puts his glory on display by healing the outcasts? I mean, we don't have to have any more application than that to, to fuel our worship for this week. But the truth is there is a lot for us here, and I want to make sure we see it. So here's what it has to do with you and me and all of us. Is, is, is scripture is clear that what ultimately makes us dirty, what ultimately defiles us, is, is not our, our physical illnesses. It's, it's our sin. All right? and, and Ephesians 2 makes it very clear that, that even our, our sin even makes us spiritually dead. Just as dead as that little girl was. We've all been defiled by our sin. In our sin, we are all unclean and outside the camp. We may try to hide it. We might try to distract ourselves, uh, you know, with our, with our busy schedule or our relationships or our good deeds. But deep down, when, when we're alone, when we're honest with God, when his word has pierced our hearts and, and his light has exposed us for who we really are, we know that our sin makes us dirty. And often that can lead us to hopelessness. I know that far too often I've, I've seen and felt the conviction of, of sin 
And, and unfortunately, in my stubbornness, uh, I don't turn to God often in those, those moments. A lot of times it, it just makes me recede farther into the darkness, trying to hide, and, and I get more isolated, and I feel more alone, and I feel more like I'm out in the wilderness, outside from, from anyone that I can really talk to, anyone I can trust in. And I begin to hear a voice just kind of whispering in my ear saying, this is it. There's, there's no way you come back from this. There's no way to be clean. Hope is gone. There's nothing that can wash away your defilement and make you clean again. And I don't know, maybe you've, maybe you've heard those lies before. Maybe you've been tempted to believe them. It's at that moment you have to know. You have to know that Jesus knows how to deal with our uncleanliness. Jesus knows how to deal with our sin. Jesus knows how to make us clean. And even though inside you might be screaming, Jesus, no, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how dirty I am. Don't get close. Don't touch me. Jesus responds, I know exactly what you've done. I knew what you did before I went to the cross to pay for it. That's why I did what I did. And he doesn't shrink back in disgust. He's not afraid of your sin. It's that he reaches out. He draws you near. And through the truth of his word and the power of his spirit and the love of his gospel, he touches you with his nail-scarred hands. And he makes you clean. And he gives you a new heart. And he doesn't become unclean. You become clean. Now, today is Palm Sunday, right? Um, today's the day that traditionally the church celebrates Jesus entering triumphantly into Jerusalem, the crowd celebrating, um, Hosanna, Hosanna, Palms, Palm Sunday. Um, but Scripture tells us that, that while the people and even the disciples were ecstatic on that day, Jesus' heart was heavy because he knew a week later he'd be marched right out those gates bearing a cross. The city that he came in a week before he'd be cast out. Hebrews 13, 12 tells us that Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. It was days after Jesus was welcomed into the city, he was arrested, mocked, stripped, beaten, whipped, marched out of the city, and murdered between two unclean criminals. Jesus took our sin, our defilement, our reproach, and he carried it outside the camp. He was sent outside the camp, just like the leper, just like the unclean, so that on the cross he could put to death our sin and our shame. And three days later he rose again, conquering death, defeating the power of sin for all who trust in him, and he sends his Holy Spirit to apply his blood 
to us, to wash us clean, to sanctify us, to make us holy. How amazing is that? Christ, Christ does not merely touch us once and heal us. He doesn't just give us a brief moment of, of healing as, as he's on his way somewhere else and we just manage to touch his, his, his robe. We don't even get just one afternoon with Jesus. We get an eternity with Christ. He doesn't just bring us back inside the camp where God dwells. He doesn't just purify us so we can enter the holy place. He makes us clean so that he can dwell within us, and he sets up camp in our hearts. How amazing is that? Look what the next verse in Hebrews says. It says, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. All right. He makes us clean, and then he sends us out to the dark, the dirty places of the world so that we can bring his healing to others. All right? There's that, that therefore is, is huge. He's, he went outside the camp to sanctify us. Therefore, let us go out and bear that same reproach so that others can know the hope of the gospel. I never forget one of the, the clearest examples of this that I've seen, um, and I can tell you more about it after the service if you want, but uh, as Paul mentioned, we feel called to go to Indonesia, and Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. The capital city of Indonesia, Jakarta, is the largest Muslim city in the world, um, and I think it if you include the whole metropolitan area, it's about 36 million, or no, 32 million people. So it's huge, it's massive. And outside the city are all these kind of squatter camps of uh, people from all over Indonesia who's come for a better life. And in the midst of these slums is a giant landfill. And there's actually about 30,000 people that live inside the landfill, and they have for four generations. And they're... They, their life is trash. They live in the trash. They work in the trash. Um, every day is spent just digging through the trash, trying to pull out metal or things to sell. Um, they eat what they find in the trash. Uh, there's a stream that runs through the landfill. That's their water for everything. Um, and so life is hard, obviously, in this dump. And... It's hard if you're a boy. As soon as you are old enough to carry a basket, you're out there digging through the trash, collecting things. Uh, it's even harder if you're a girl. Um, often at a very young age, uh, the girls are, are abused, and, and there's truck drivers that are constantly driving uh, trash, dumping trash off, and, and there's, there's a lot of trafficking going on, things like that. Um, I'll never, never remember hearing the story of, of this girl named Rosa. She was about 12 years old at the time. Actually, we got a couple of pictures of, uh, of the dump. I should probably use this. You gave it to me. So, so that's, that's Indonesia, but that's not the part that we're going to. So um, that's, that's the landfill, and that's one of the villages there. And um, I remember hearing the story of Rosa, and uh, she was just talking about her life. And, and these are our Muslim people. 
So even in the middle of, of the trash, they have a little makeshift mosque. And um, she, she was describing her life, and, and she said, I, I pray to Allah that he would just take me away from here uh, and, and take me to himself. But I don't know if he hears me because I live in the trash and I am, I am dirty, I'm unclean, you know, because Muslims have very strict purity laws. And if you live in the trash, it's very hard to keep those. And so her religion told her that her God would not even listen to her because of where she lived. And my heart just broke for her, obviously, for so many reasons. Um, but the thing that, that broke my heart the most is she's never heard about this Jesus. She's never heard about the God who knew that we could never get out of the trash. So he came down to us. And he lived in the trash. And he was treated like trash. And he was crucified like a piece of trash. So that we could be reconciled to him so that we could be made clean, so that we could have fellowship with God. And she never heard that until she met this guy, Yusuf. So Yusuf is a dear brother in the Lord. He's an Indonesian pastor. He's planted a few churches in the city. And about five years ago, he heard about these people living in the trash. And so he came outside the city gates, bearing the reproach, dealing with his people nobody wanted to deal with so that he could love them in the name of Jesus. And the, 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 the village knew he was a Christian and they were Muslim, but no one else was helping them. No one else was showing them love. And so, so he began working with their kids, um, doing some schooling, some uh, other just basic life skills, things like that, uh, advocating for them, and sharing the gospel I'll never remember, I got an email from him a few years ago. John, we just had our first profession of faith in the landfill. Guess who it was? It was Rosa. All right, so, so, so now we have a sister in Christ who lives in the trash in Jakarta, but because of the gospel, she is cleaner than the whitest snow. And so that's, that's who we're going to work with. And, and, and uh, again, I can talk more about that. But I share this just because, you know, I want to give you a little bit of a taste for, for what we're doing in Indonesia. But ultimately, I want to share this because I want you to know that, that God's still going to the outcast. God's still going to the dark places. God's still going to the places that the rest of society does not want to go. He's still going outside the camp. And he's doing it through people like you and me, people that have been washed clean and people that he's empowered to go bring his healing touch to the rest of the world. There's power in Christ to make you clean. There's power in Christ to bring us back into the presence of God. And that's the promise to all that are in Christ This is the destiny of all who are washed by the blood of Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Christ.
Christ. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, God, we thank you for your word that tells a consistent story over hundreds of years, Lord. That tells us about who you are. That tells us about who we are. And tells us about your amazing gospel. Tells us about our amazing Savior, Jesus, who can reconcile broken, dirty people and wash us by your blood. And then empower us to go out and proclaim the message of good news. It is good news. No one else has this news. No one else has a Savior like you. So, Lord, please help us to be faithful to proclaim that good news, whether it's here in Parker, around the world, in Europe, Asia. God, make us faithful, Lord, because it is good news. Remind us of how good you've been to us. We thank you, God, that you are the God who loves the outcast. You are the God who goes outside the camp. And at the price of your own blood, redeems us and washes us and sanctifies us. Thank you for the, the hope that we have that one day we all will be back in your city, worshiping you together. The leper will be there, will be there, Rosa will be there. Lord, all who trust in your name and have been washed by the blood of the Lamb will be there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.